Cathedral Studios production. I'm Lewis. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. And this is Living Communion. Welcome to another episode of Living Communion. We're so blessed to be here with you. Uh, Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. This is Psalm number 146. Alleluia. Praise the Lord, my soul. I shall praise the Lord all my life. Sing praise to my God while I live. Put no trust in princes, in mere mortals powerless to save. When they breathe their last, they return to their earth. That day, all their planning comes to nothing. Happy those whose help is Jacob's God, whose hope is in the Lord, their God, the maker of heaven and earth, the seas and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, secures justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the stranger, sustains the orphan and the widow, but thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord shall reign forever, your God Zion, through all generations. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Last week, we talked about the illustrious individual, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, clearly could have a whole podcast on St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so it was a, it was a cursory glance. But um, we're going to be transitioning into a different time. And um, I would love if, Mark, you could tell us, where are we going next on our journey into the contemporary Catholic social tradition? Okay, so the next uh, era of history uh, that has some relevance to the Catholic social uh, teaching uh, uh, heritage uh, is the period known as the Enlightenment. Uh, it's, it's difficult to put a starting date and an ending date to the period of the Enlightenment, but its heyday, let's say, was between the years 1600 and 1800. So what we see going on during this period of time is uh, the really the, the, the birth of what we, you know, the modern scientific method. We see uh, the exaltation of human reason and, uh, a, a, and an appeal to the, to the senses, okay? So one of the outcomes of the Enlightenment was that there was a, a growing separation from and even uh, disdain for the church. The, the, the church at this time was seen to be out of step, out of touch with uh, reason. Uh, it was, out of, it was uh, uh, 
began to be seen as nothing but a, a, a bunch of uh, superstitions, okay? Not true, but that's the way the church was, was perceived. Um, we, you see during this period of time a decline in the power of the papacy. And uh, partly this is true because of the rise of the, uh, the, the nations like France and Spain and Portugal and England and, and the Netherlands, which became more powerful and, there, and therefore more autonomous and more identifiable as nations because of their wealth from the new world. During this period of time, you also see uh, a decline in uh, the uh, scholastic method. Um, philosophy, not well, largely became an exercise in interpreting and reinterpreting and reinterpreting the thought of Thomas Aquinas. So there's not a lot of new or creative thought coming out of Catholic philosophy. So you have, just to give you an example of some of uh, enlightenment thinkers, there's people, the scientists like Galileo or Isaac Newton or Copernicus and uh, uh, social, political, philosophical thinkers like Thomas Hobbes or Rene Descartes, David Hume, Immanuel Kant, Baruch Spinoza, Leibniz, Blaise Pascal. So this is the period of time that we're talking about. And in just a, a few minutes, I'll give some uh, examples of Enlightenment thinkers and their uh, relevance to the, the social teaching. Yeah, a lot of those figures, I'm sure so many listeners, maybe they have heard of these names. You know, they ring a bell from an undergrad class or maybe like just listening to something, talk to my talk about philosophy in general, some very big names there. And, you know, for Catholics, many of us will be like, okay, well, how is this relevant to the Catholic social tradition? But these thinkers are really the architects of, you know, modernity or modern or a lot of contemporary kind of like thought patterns, right? We just talked about Aquinas and Aquinas was this massive figure. He still is a massive figure, mainly for Catholics, but he was a massive figure in general prior to some of these figures. And so it's it's a really different shift that happens um, during this time of, you know, just increased, um, we would call it like rationalistic, hyper-rationalistic, looking at faith as, uh, you know, often superstitious and often um, weighing down the human mind in a way. Um, so really people are trying to break out of like the, the break out of the way of thinking that the church has, has, you know, given them or kind of like led them to, to thinking and that they're kind of freeing themselves, enlightening themselves, right. Apart from the church. That's right. We're seeing, we're seeing the decline of uh, Christendom, which we talked about uh, a couple of uh, episodes ago, where the church exerted incredible influence over almost every aspect of life in the enlightenment. You see, the intellectual community beginning to break away uh, intentionally from, uh, you know, fr fr from, uh, from Catholic thought, okay, and, 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 and going its own way. Matt, um, so as Catholics, you know, when we're thinking about this time period, which has a big, it's like an architect, like it's, it's truly like this time period of like the, the foundations being set for 
countries like the United States. I mean, many of these figures were, <laughs> were people who were read. I mean, these are people who kind of were they're in the air now, you know, some of their ideas for us. And so as Catholics, you know, how do we, what are some thoughts on the Enlightenment? Or how do we look at this and how do we consider this and, uh, and, and contemplate the Enlightenment, its value? Yeah, so um, obviously if we could t- do a whole podcast on <laughs> Thomas Aquinas, we, we could do several podcasts mm-hmm. on Catholic responses to, to the Enlightenment. Um, but I, I think... The, the figure I go to um, when I think about the Enlightenment is um, Alistair McIntyre. And I mentioned um, in our last episode on um, St. Thomas Aquinas that, um, you know, if you, if you studied um, the history of philosophy, you would talk about the ancient Greeks, especially Plato and Aristotle. Um, and then you would talk about kind of the, the big Christian figures like St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. And if you're specifically studying um, Aristotelian thought and how it's traced through history, the modern figure you would study is Alistair MacIntyre. Um, and he, he's a philosopher who um, I believe is still alive. He, um, he, he was alive several years ago when he taught me. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to claim like I was individually, t- I took one of his classes in oh, under your disciple. Oh. <laughs> <You're> disciple. <laughs> um, I, you know, and, and he taught it on something that wasn't his own philosophy. Um, obviously of course you get his, his background and his approach, but it wasn't like on his work. Um, but, uh, one of the, his approach in understanding the Enlightenment is to look at where it came from. And he kind of traces that back from modernity, saying, here are the symptoms of the Enlightenment that we see today. And that includes kind of our inability to have um, coherent, rational discussions now, because everyone comes from a different jumping off point. And he, he traces that back um, in a lot of detail um, to, to the Enlightenment, and says, look, what was happening in the Enlightenment? Um, the Enlightenment was a project to um, understand reality and uphold or propose, in, in some cases, um, conclusions from the past or, or different um, conclusions using different starting points. And the reason that the starting points had to be different was because of the political, scientific, and religious revolutions that had occurred um, through, um, obviously, the break of of Protestantism from from the church, um, the um, political um, mess that Europe continued to be, um, you know, during and and post-Christendom that that Mark just referenced, and then the, the scientific thought that was emerging. And without getting too detailed, what, what McIntyre basically shows is you, you have a wearing down of common communal conception and a change in understanding of even what certain things meant or, or could be understood as. And so philosophy had to find new starting points to try to uphold some of the conclusions that they, they wanted because they said, well, one, if, if you're a Protestant, you're not going to follow Thomas Aquinas anymore. So we've got to get rid of Aquinas. How can we uphold some of the same moral, intellectual, political, theological conclusions 
that we want to uphold, but reject Aquinas. Um, you know, how can we do that as Protestants? And that, that's just one small example of how this plays out. Um, one way out of many in which the, the um, kind of framework was, was altered. And so what you, you have in the Enlightenment um, are people proposing conclusions that are more or less compatible with, with Christianity and then people who, who propose conclusions that aren't. Um, but they're, they're trying to find new starting points. And one of those starting points, um, it, it very famous, and this was a, a Catholic philosopher, although the Catholic Church is not fond of his philosophy, Rene Descartes, you know, the, I think, therefore I am. And that, that was a very common type of, not, not his own approach, but the sense that you have to start at the very beginning. How do you prove anything exists? Um, how, do you, how do we know um, and, you know, McIntyre argues that, you know, you can't take skeptics seriously. Um, you, you have to start with commonly held assumptions, not, um, you can't treat philosophy like you would, uh, geometric proof. Um, there, there are different ways of knowing they're different things. And when you take the skeptic seriously, you, you end up having to reduce philosophy to a type of, um, mathematical logic that doesn't really work. Um, so that, that's kind of his um, very, very rushed um, summary of the, the Catholic understanding of, of um, the Enlightenment, um, in a sense. And again, there, there are conclusions from the Enlightenment that are compatible with, with Christianity, Christian ethics, Christian thought, and there are conclusions that are not. Yeah, I was about to say, um, I was like, we <laughs> you just bag on the <laughs> this so, is so yeah we, we we don't we don't you don't just take anything that a, a you know enlightenment philosopher said and throw it out the window but you know in terms of catholic approach to enlightenment philosophy is it's hard to harmonize enlightenment philosophy as a whole with catholic theology because it takes as a premise something that that doesn't harmonize um, One of the things with with Catholic theology, this idea of uh, kind of faith in combat with reason, kind of like faith or is like like reason is like fighting faith. It's kind of like a struggle. It seems like so. Like if people are listening and they're not, if you don't know that much about philosophy, like what you hear, what you may be hearing is a lot of kind of people uh, you know in philosophy kind of combating again and against kind of the old or traditional ways of viewing things and really, you know, basically saying, how can we just rethink everything? How can we just rethink all the foundations? Go ahead. Yeah, and, and you just mentioned something that's really important. I mean, uh, Aquinas uh, harmonized uh, faith and reason. But what the Enlightenment uh, people, not all of them, but in general, tried to do is take the faith out of it. Mm-hmm. So Descartes ends up saying we can we can posit the reality of God, but not in faith. It's because you know once we establish the existence of the the cogito of the of the self, that which we can't doubt, then he can reason to the existence of a world and reason to the existence of a God. But it's where it's his starting point that's very different. He they they rejected the harmonization of, of, uh, of faith and reason, of philosophy and theology. They wanted philosophy to go 
to go on its its own way. Yeah, one of the examples I was going to mention is what you see in some of the Enlightenment philosophers or, you know, responses to, to some Enlightenment philosophy is an attempt to use reason to prove that we, we should accept God and therefore act in faith. You, you support reason solely, or you support faith solely through reason. You say, well, the most reasonable thing is to have faith, not that you're having faith because you trust God, and therefore you trust what God has revealed, but because it's the most reasonable thing to have faith. And the way they usually do this is by arguing for miracles. Miracles exist. Here's proof of miracles. Therefore, if there are miracles, there must be a God who creates miracles. Um, therefore, we should, you know, but again, that's using just your reason to trust God. It, it takes any kind of relationship out and says, you know, first and foremost, we have this foundation in reason. Again, that, that makes, you know, religious faith a very different thing. It turns it into you know, an intellectual, primarily intellectual exercise and not primarily a um, personal spiritual exercise that has as part of it an intellectual dimension, yeah. but also has a, a very personal dimension. Like if I have faith in God, I, I have to trust um, God in my personal life as well. Like, okay, I don't know where this road is going in my life, but I, I trust that, you know, by doing the right thing um, instead of the thing that seems most economically convenient, um, God will continue to help me to, to be able to survive. Um, you know, small example of the, the different understanding of faith also through, through enlightenment uh, thought. And, you know, I want to make one more point um, from, well, maybe two more points from McIntyre before we, we get into our specific examples um, one of his sort of responses to, to the Enlightenment is um, he highlights Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, or Nietzsche is, you know, depending on who you talk to. Um, and, you know, most of us have probably heard the name, but Nietzsche is known for positing the idea of the Superman um, in a valueless kind of society. Um, and um, what McIntyre points out rightly is Nietzsche saw that enlightenment philosophy doesn't work. And he basically said, you know, you're all arguing from, from premises that don't hold up or, or whatever. And what you really have is an absence of, of truth and value and, and goodness. And, and in a world like that, where, you know, it's the person who, who just has the will to power who, who prevails, you know, so the Superman, you know, and that's a, a very, concise and, and hopefully fairly accurate, but obviously not overly detailed um, summation of Nietzsche. And what McIntyre says is Nietzsche's right if you base yourself only on the Enlightenment. But if you go back to Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, you have another option. Um, but he says philosophy can only exist and only work when you have a community that has um, a, a common set of values and has an understanding of the common good that they're all pursuing. When, when there's no communal sense of what absolute goodness is, it's very hard to have a coherent philosophy in that culture because everyone's pursuing different goods and everyone's basing their thought on, on different things. And so that's also part of his diagnosis for why we 
have disjointed arguments and conversations in modernity because we don't have a, a common assumption of the common good, which you know is very important for us as we continue to talk in our, our podcast that you know in, in modernity in society as a whole, we, we don't have a common understanding of what the good is for each and every person. And that makes, you know, helpful dialogue and conversation difficult. Um, so, you know, again, he talks about the importance of having communities that, that have a, a common assumption of, of the good so that they can uphold and support one another. What's so interesting, um, I just want to have this brief thought but because I know that some listeners may have no background in philosophy, I just want to. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to. This, this is a, a more technical podcast. This is than, this than is a more, t- to say the least. This is <laughs> this, this isn't going to be the norm, but the Enlightenment yeah. forces us to do this. Morning, <laughs> but just to, just to ground that, one of the things you just mentioned, you talked about just, um, you talked about how. Um, uh, uh, how McIntyre and, and I'm not a McIntyrean scholar, right? I mean, but how McIntyre talked about, you know, having this communal grounding, a common understanding, a common life by which people can come to common like views on which to talk about. So it's like starting points, the same starting points that people can have when they're having conversations and things like that. But I, it seems like this this individual has a view of the importance of the communal dimension of life. That, that people are not just individual, like you can't just have people pursuing all these individual goals just completely separate from the social reality that, that they're connected to in a broader way, which really brought to my mind, hopefully I'm interpreting him somewhat validly, but uh, it brings to mind too what we talked about in previous podcasts about how you see how often in the Catholic or Christian life more broadly, um, people coming together to live a common life, to grow in a common life, to to really live out, you know, this this to live out their humanity in a common way as being a way to facilitate growth and to facilitate, um, you know, just having a, a deeper uh, understanding of, of how to live out both the Christian life, but again, the humanity uh, more broadly and philosophy being kind of the pursuit of wisdom in a way. You also say that they live this way in a sense of trying to live out the wisdom that they believe uh, would lead them to live in this way. And um, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a, a writer. Um, he's a disgraced writer at this time, but he had a book that was very impactful later than the Enlightenment uh, called Community and Growth. It's Jean Vanier. And in that book, he talked about how living in community helps you to encounter other people and really helps you to understand the world better because people can kind of, they, they pull you out of yourself. And so I think that one of the things that having a common way of thinking does, and, and when we just pursue our own individual, our own individual goals in isolation, it, 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 it kind of brings us in on ourselves. And I think about that when you talked about um, when he was like, I think, therefore I am. It's, it's like this hyper, you know, like kind of thought you're kind of like locked in your own like mental battle with yourself and your existence. And like, it's like, I'm almost like, man, why'd you do that to yourself, man? Like you didn't have to, you didn't have to struggle that deep, but he kind of just like locked himself in like a, a some type of like a room or something. And just like, was thinking deeply about, but you know, it, it, it just, it reminds me of how, um, you know, the, the enlightenment, when we're talking about the enlightenment for people who again are not familiar, it was really this time of the mind and, and, and again, 
rationalism and just kind of exalting the mind above all other realities. The mind can dissect everything and, and piece everything together and put it back, put it back, uh, take everything apart and piece it back together. Yeah. You, you mentioned Descartes. I mean, and we've already talked about this, but uh, Aquinas began with faith and, you know, applied reason to it. Descartes begins with doubt you know, ra- rather than faith, he begins with doubt, and then he searches for that which he cannot doubt, and that is the, the you know, the the cogito, the thinking self. It's something he cannot doubt. So you can see where uh, Descartes' uh, uh, starting point is very different from from uh, Aquinas. Aquinas begins with faith, and and faith seeking understanding. Yeah. Uh, and, and Descartes begins with doubt seeking understanding. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of went off on, on this idea of, you know, um, you know, arguing for, for God in order to prove the, the um, conclusions of faith, which is, which is what some of the Enlightenment um, thought was doing or, or responses to Enlightenment thought. Aquinas offers what are, are widely considered um, the definitive um, arguments for the existence of God. Um, you know, it's, it's five proofs for the existence of God, but Aquinas also says, and this goes back to when we were talking about his understanding of the good, that, again, you, you can't reason properly if you're not living a moral life. So he, he says, you know, it, it would be hard and, and it's difficult for, for someone to arrive at these conclusions, um, you know, on their own with, without, you know, living a, a certain way. Because, you know, your, your passions, you know, if there's certain ways you, you don't want to live, then you've got a vested interest in not believing a God who's going to tell you to live differently, right? So it makes it harder to see clearly the arguments because you don't want to see them clearly. Um, and because you're your vision is skewed. So that's another, you know, kind of how, how faith and reason kind of support each other, as opposed to the sense that all I want my reason to do is prove that God exists so that I can prove that the, the things my God says exist or, or says should be upheld are upheld. There's, there's a difference between that and this kind of personal, like understanding that God exists and that has consequences for my life. Um, and it's helping me see the world more clearly. Um, so again, uh, don't want to get back on Aquinas <laughs> too much, but I think that's one of the, the things he illuminates. I think it's also worth pointing out that the scholastic understanding um, was that um, philosophy was the, the queen of the sciences, which sounds weird to us, um, or you know, that um, when we hear science, we think, you know, chemistry, physics, um, biology, um, engineering. Uh, we, we don't think philosophy, but science used to be how we know. Um, and then it got applied more and more specifically with the development of the, the scientific method to just what is understood through the scientific method. Um, and, and built off of that, as opposed to knowing in general. But philosophy is understood as that which organizes all the rest of our knowledge and helps harmonize it. And then theology helps enlighten philosophy. 
because faith and reason work together. I've actually heard a quote you guys may know. Faith purifies reason. Who said that? Did, did, was that St. John Paul II or was that? I, I don't remember, but it, it's a two-part. Faith clear. Faith purifies reason and reason clarifies faith or something mm. like that. It, I think it's a, a double whammy. Interesting. So, John Paul um, II did say faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth, um, which is one there of my go. favorites. Um, <laughs> John Paul II. Yeah, that is John Paul II. All right. Back to Mark. Mark's going to tell us about people <laughs> in the Enlightenment and yeah, what they I, thought about specific issues. <laughs> So there, there's a couple of uh, Enlightenment thinkers whose thought is relevant to the, to the the social teaching. The first of those is John Locke. John Locke lived during the 17th century, British uh, political philosopher, and he is known for a number of things, but I want to focus on his social contract theory. He was one of several philosophers who proposed a social contract theory. The first was, was Thomas Hobbes, but uh, Locke's social contract theory is, is different. So Locke says that prior to the formation of governments, people exist in what he called the state of nature. They exist on their own. And it's, an, it's a situation in which every person lives for himself. And so that, that leads to his, uh, you know, his conclusion that that the source of political authority, and this is a radical idea for its time, that the source of political authority resides in the people, not in God, uh, nor in the king. Uh, you know, so he is writing this during the time of the divine right monarchy, and he's challenging the assumption of the divine right, right monarchy. So the, he goes on to say that people form governments through their own consent, the consent of the governed. That's a, a phrase we're familiar with, that governments should not be forced on people, that they should form governments through their own uh, consent, and that the people confer on government, give to government, the duty uh, of protecting their, their natural rights, what he calls their natural rights, which are inalienable. Uh, and he would have said God-given rights. And these rights were life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And so the purpose of government is to preserve the life, liberty, property, and health of the people. Uh, and, and also to, to punish those who violate uh, those rights. And so the purpose of government, he would say, is to pursue the public good. Now, that's that's pretty consistent with the Catholic Church's, uh, what will become the Catholic Church's teaching on the common good. OK, so he will say that it's the purpose of government to pursue the public good even when the public good conflicts with the rights of individuals, that the common good takes precedence over individual rights. So then it, in this context, property is extremely important because it becomes a, a, a person's property becomes their zone of liberty. Their, you know, little acre with the picket fence around it of, of liberty against tyranny and specifically against the king. Hobbes had said that people should be governed by a king, a benevolent king, 
uh, Hobbes said, no, people should not, that, that, that the king, that the, that the monarchy was tyrannical in and of itself. So, so then let's, let's talk about what Locke had to say about uh, property. He begins by saying this, something that will resonate with Catholic social teaching, that God gave the earth to all people in common. That sounds like the church fathers, doesn't it? And so he, then he, that leads him to ask the question, so how do we, how do we acquire private property? If the, earth, if the earth belongs to God, then how does one acquire you know, morally, legally, private property? And he's, he will say that we acquire property through our labor, through farming, through grazing, through building, okay? Um, and, and, and then that leads to the question, well, how much property may one uh, acquire? And he breaks it out. He says, first of all, well, he breaks it out in terms of goods, land, and money. And so he says, you know, he asks, how many goods may one acquire? And his answer is that we may acquire only what we can use, only the amount of goods that we can that we can use without those goods going to waste, without them uh, spoiling, the food spoiling or, or going unused. And he will say that anything beyond that does not belong to, to us. It belongs to others. Again, pretty resonant with, with social teaching. In terms of land, he will say, we may acquire only as much land as we can adequately maintain, but that we should always leave enough land for other people to be able to maintain so that they can have their own zone of liberties, if you will. And, and, and in terms of money, he says, how much, how much money may we acquire? And on this, a point Locke is kind of unclear because he says that the unequal acquisition of money leads to controversy and dispute and how well we know that okay uh, and, and so the the unequal uh, acquisition of money is one of the reasons uh, why governments become necessary to adjudicate those disputes between those who have more and those who have less so uh, you know, as we know, Locke's views were deeply influential when it comes to the founding of the United States. The founding fathers were very, you know, steeped in, in the thought of John Locke and others, Rousseau, Montesquieu. And also uh, 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 the French Revolution was based, uh, you know, uh, in, in part on the views of Locke. So there you have, there you have John Locke and just a few words uh, about another not so much a political philosopher, but uh, a social philosopher and an economist, uh, Adam Smith. Adam Smith was part of the Scottish uh, Enlightenment, lived in the 18th century, 1723 to 1790. And rather than get into whole the invisible hand of, you know, and the market and all that, all that kind of stuff, which isn't really relevant to the conversation, I want to say just a few words about uh, Smith's views on property. He said this, that, that people's property, their private property needs to be respected. But he differs from Locke by saying that 
people's property should be respected, not because they have an inalienable or God-given right to property, but because the person who loses property feels resentment if he loses it. So we don't want that kind of social uh, unrest if one person takes the property of another. So he believes that governments should protect property in order to ensure order in society, okay? So he, but he believes, and this is where he differs with Locke, and this is a significant difference because he, uh, Smith believes that the right to property is absolute. Um, so it, it, as, it, as I've mentioned, if somebody steals my loaf of bread, even, even if that person is starving, Adam Smith says that person should be punished for it. Where uh, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Thomas Aquinas had a very different view of that, okay? And, and so um, this absolute notion of ownership is what is accepted for the most part overwhelmingly in American capitalism, that what's mine is mine and everyone else should leave it alone that I can acquire as much as I want legally, I, you know, as long as I acquire it legally, and I can do whatever I want with what I own. If I have, uh, you know, uh, a thousand acres out in Texas and there's people around it who could farm it, I don't have to let them farm it. I can let it stand fallow. And, that, you know, that's, that's just too bad. In other words, uh, the individual has no obligations in justice when it, belong, when it comes to their property, they own it absolutely. They have, if they wanna be benevolent, if they wanna be charitable, that's their choice, but they have no obligations to those who are uh, in need. So there you, we see two examples of enlightenment thinkers whose conclusions are, are uh, quite different. Yeah, and I think it's just, it speaks to I think our perspective in the United States, you know, obviously these people, like we were just talking about, these people have laid the foundations. They're in the air. They're in mm -hmm. the air of what should breathe. Like maybe people listening are like, I don't, I don't really know anything about philosophy. Like I don't really, I've never read a philosophy book. I just go to church or I don't even go to church. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about, but this stuff is in the air. Like this no. is, we're trying to bring out what these concepts, they, you, you're breathing them in, even when you're not reading the book, you're not, going to, to a course on them, you know, these are just there. And so as Catholics, what's important about this and as people, you know, just in general, what's important about these concepts and knowing them is that it helps us to challenge ourselves and to think like, how are we really thinking about the world? And then for people of faith and people who are looking at this in contemporary times, maybe in light of Catholic social teaching, it may help to explain these, these some of these ideas that we may have, you know, because of our culture or because of our background, these ideas may not come from, you know, where we think they come from, right? They may have an origin that you can trace. They may not be, you know, just because they're pretty common doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. <laughs> um, and there's yeah. many things like that. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's a pretty common assumption without people ever having even heard maybe of Adam Smith that what an individual owns, what I own is mine and I can do with it whatever I want. You know, so that's the assumption that comes from thinking like that of Adam Smith and others. And so when Catholic social teaching approaches the question of property from an entirely different perspective, 
that we are not owner, absolute owners of anything, that we are uh, stewards of, of, of what we have, and that the world, that, you know, the universal destination of goods, that the world belongs to everyone for their use, not to me for my hoarding. That's a very tough, uh, it's a philosophical nut, but it's a very difficult nut to crack. Yeah, that's tough for people. And I think too, we have to remember as Catholics, where do we ground our vision, right? We started with the book of Genesis. Why did we start with the book of Genesis? Because that helps us to ground ourselves. God created man in this zone, in this, on this earth. Um, and this is like, this, this, it was, a, it was it, all of these things that came later and all of these developments and these things. Um, we have to look at them in light of Genesis, in light of kind of this tradition. We have we we can't um, as as people if, as Catholics, it's important that we do that because people may hear you know this talk about property and it may rub people differently. The church doesn't teach that. Like, okay, <laughs> let's take a step back. It's important to remember what where did God how did God create us to live? He created us in this harmony with each other, this harmony with himself, this harmony with nature. At that time, I mean, I would just say as a thought experiment, right? This is just a thought experiment, but imagine being in the Garden of Eden. Could you imagine somebody just hoarding all the, like, <laughs> could you imagine Adam being like, all right, you know what, Eve, you go over there and this is yeah. all my zone. You can, you have this zone and then if you wanna come in my zone, you can give me a couple apples and then I'll let you reside in this zone for a set amount of time, like, it's, it's, we have to just remember like that. That and I'm again. This is a thought experiment, like very jovial. Yeah. But just saying, like to think about this and ground yourself really in the idea of of the garden. And of course, property has its uh, ownership of property has its place. And we may go into that in further episodes. So we want to make people say you can't own things. It's not Catholic. It is, but it's about it's about the way you approach property stewardship. It's not like this property, God gave me this property. And then he's just saying, hey, however you want to, whatever you want to do with it, you have no moral obligation at all. Like, and that's not true. That's simply not the gospel. There's so many stories of Jesus Christ in the, in the gospels that completely, you know, challenge that view. I think about uh, the story of Lazarus as being a very prominent one, but there's so many others. Um, and it's important to recognize, you know, as a part of our gospel witness, as as people who want to live faithfully in the 21st century, we have to know our property is for us to use for others as well. It's not absolute just for us. Not just part of our scriptural tradition, it's part of our uh, philosophical tradition too. the natural law. You know, yes, that's yes. That there's natural law thinking in this uh, assertion that uh, the world uh, belongs to everyone for their use. Uh, in other words, that was God's intention. When God made the world, that's what God wanted the world to be used for, not to be hoarded by the few, but to be used by all. You know, so you know, the, uh, that's a, a, like I was just saying. That's a very difficult uh, uh, concept to to get people to buy into. Yeah, I. As you've been talking, I've actually been thinking a little bit about my children and um, specifically, uh, you know, when, when there's a dispute and you get the, that's mine, you know, mine. 
Um, and you know what I don't want to say is you know that we're we're all childish, but I as a parent, I I want to talk about my reaction to hearing that. It it makes me feel kind of sad and, and shriveled inside a little bit, like um, you know, that this sense of um you know, uh, not wanting to share, wanting to, and, you know, of course it's, oh, there, you know, there, there's no interest in using it until the other child is using it. And then, you know, they want to use it and not this is mine. Um, and the, the, you know, again, there's this lack of, um, sense of, oh, he can have that or, oh, she can have that. Or, um, even just gratitude that it exists. Um, you know, it's just embedded in, in one, sin, and two, you know, our, our culture that, you know, if I want it and um, I don't want to share it, I don't have to. And it, it's something I see more and more is, you know, kind of my job as a parent to, to help my children have a, a different approach to the things in our life. Um, you know, that no, like we, we share that even, even if it is your toy, like it's been given to you, it's not just a family toy, but that was a gift to you. Why not share it? You weren't using it, you know, let your brother have it, let your sister have it. Um, you know, they can enjoy it too. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that that is something I, I felt more and more kind of convicted about in, in my kind of reflections on what are, what is my job as a parent in, and two, just, again, the sense that um, before anything else, we should be grateful this exists. Um, and if we're grateful that the things in our life exist, then we understand that they're not first and foremost ours, but that they're first and foremost a gift from God. And that gratitude then allows us, hopefully, to, to be gracious in, in how we use what we have and to have a, um, again, this approach of, of stewardship, this approach of um, not, not being overly attached to, to what's ours because, again, we understand it's not. Um, I, I think that is um, kind of the big shift spiritually that um, all this intellectual stuff we've been talking about requires is, is having a attitude. I can't believe I'm going to say it, having an attitude of gratitude. Love it. Drive it home. Um, but, you know, really that, that is um, the, the foundation we need. And uh, one of my favorite writers, GK Chesterton talks about, um, how our joy has to be conditioned in gratitude, um, the joy we have in the world. And I, I think that's true that, um, you know, our, our approach of prayer should be first and foremost, when we think of what we have, not just thank you, God, for giving this to me, but thank you, God, that this exists and that I have the privilege of, of having stewardship of it, that you've entrusted it to me, that you've entrusted my, my spouse to, to me, and I've entrusted myself to her, um, that you've entrusted our children to us, 
um, that you've entrusted our house and our yard to us, that you've entrusted my salary to us. How can we use those things and, and approach those things and love those things in, in a way that gives you the most glory and, and helps others? Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, if we're, we're ready to move into our takeaways, that that would be my, my takeaway is to um, look at the world with gratitude. Um, practice gratitude this week. Well, no, practice gratitude for the rest of your life. Um, this is going to be a weekly exercise. <laughs> um, you know, too bad. Uh, this is a lifelong assignment. Practice gratitude. Um, and, and take time every day. Every day. Um, and that's something my wife and I do when we, we pray together. Um, we, we thank God in our prayers. And we do that with our children when we pray with them. We thank God. You know, we, we make our children say what they're thankful for. And sometimes it's really silly stuff. It's like, I can't believe you're thanking God for that. But then the other hand, it's like, well, they are thanking God for that. You know, I'd rather you thank God for something more important. But if you want to thank God for the, the TV show you watched today, or you want to thank God for your toy car, great. Yeah. Um, so practice gratitude. Yeah. So I guess, I guess uh, mine would be, uh, you know, as we get closer and closer to the modern Catholic social teaching, I think we will see um, that uh, it, it challenges some of our basic assumptions about the way things are. We just touched on property tonight. And so as this series continues, I invite all of our viewers and listeners and us, the, the, the panel here, to be willing to, to, uh, to challenge our own assumptions about the way things are and the way things ought to be. Yeah, that's a great, both of those are great. And my thing is just a quote, I think it's a quote from, I, I do a lot of things that I think are from St. John Paul II, and I think I just assume that. Um, but it's this phrase, uh, use things and love people. Mm. And just to remember that, just to think about that, just to try to carry that with you this week, you know, as you're doing um, Matt's call to gratitude and thanking God and, you know, looking at your family life, looking at your friends, looking at the world around you and also thanking God for what you have. But remembering that you don't really love these things. You love these people and to challenge yourself to love the people that you don't know so closely, but to you and remember that you're using these things, you know, for out of love for others and for, God, and that this is kind of the way that you order, how, how, do I, how do I use these things well? How do I live this stewardship? I think that principle can help us to, to live stewardship a little bit better, maybe, uh, every day. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Living Communion. We are coming up into uh, the contemporary Catholic social. You guys want to stick around. You guys want to subscribe. You guys want to uh, share this with every single person you know and have ever met, just send it to them via text. So we look forward to hearing from you. You leave us comments wherever you're checking us out, Facebook, Instagram. Look forward to hearing you next week and for you to hear us on Living Community. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a comment there. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for living community.
This has been a Cathedral Studios production.